I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. This month's single-serving selection, Vengeance. Okay, Casey, I have a pitch for you about this episode. Shoot, shoot. You're going to like this. It's about America. (laughs) It's about the myths we tell ourselves, a new American reality that people just can't accept. It's about the death of American identity. Oh, wow. It sounds great. 100%. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, we are talking about the movie Vengeance from the year 2022, written, directed, and starring B.J. Novak, best known as Ryan the Temp from the American version of The Office. Right. Also wrote for and executive produced, and uh, mostly an actor. You would know him from other things like Inglorious Bastards. He's As a writer. one of the two people that survived that movie. Right. <laughs> he's he's a writer. He writes kids' books, I know, as well. So, yeah, he's, he's yeah. written a number of other things as well. But mostly an actor, and this is his directorial debut. So, um, Casey, yes. if you had to sum up this movie in a paragraph or two, what is Vengeance all about? It's a story about a New York podcaster named Ben who receives notice that a former hookup has died from an overdose and invited by her family to come to Texas for her funeral. Ben sees the tragedy as an opportunity as the subject for a true crime podcast entitled Dead White Girl. Ben finds his preconceptions about Texas and Texans are turned upside down as he interviews those who knew the girl and begins to believe there might be more to the story than meets the eye. And we're joined in this discussion about this movie by a returning guest, the chair of the Puget Sound Socialist Party and author of the true crime book Inherited Secrets, memoir of America's groundbreaking genetic witness, Chelsea Rusted. Welcome back, Chelsea. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to be here. And uh, I found this film really interesting and strangely pertinent to my own uh, surreal life experiences. So I'm really excited to talk about it. That might have been part of the design. Uh (laughs) It's all coming together. The evil plan. So you're a, a true crime author. With that in mind, what did you think of this movie? Yeah. I mean, on its surface, like you said, it's the story about a person who creates stories and is kind of that individual who is looking for content wherever he could find it and maybe in a almost exploity way doesn't really particularly care about the impact on the people that are involved, sees them as characters, sees them as content creation vehicles. And it's so, it's such an accurate portrayal of what it is like, not just with true crime in general, but dealing with television production crews and Mm. newspapers and magazines if you've if you have talked to the media and they you know they want you to be part of the story they're telling the way they go about that and the way that you're handled feels a little bleak and it it, it's very (laughs) you know it's a little disillusioning because you come in thinking i have an opportunity to uh contribute to this story to uh, share my insights and and maybe even talk a little bit about victims advocacy things that are important to me they've got their own narrative already they they have their own way of approaching it and it was this is such an insightful look at what what that behind the scenes process is like it looks cartoonish in the film but i really am here to tell you it's not that far off hmm. from reality but that's a big part of like ben's story in this movie which is that just like you're talking about He's coming to this with a story already written in his head. Yes. That he's not curious at all. And a lot of a lot of what he has, and you see it at the beginning when he's in New York, hanging out with John Mayer at a party, yeah. which is that he's clever, but he's not authentic. Yes. I mean, really, his journey in this movie is to stop being a fucking bullshitter and have something real that actually comes from him in a place that is sincere like what is he having that conversation with john mayer they're basically bust both immature fuck boys right. <laughs> but they're trying to reframe it as this deep philosophical issue about choice mm-hmm. what is it john mayer says you know people like to say that we're afraid of commitment we're not afraid of commitment we're afraid of commitment to things we can't get out of <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's 
And he also has this moment of where he's having dinner with the family early in the movie where he says that his talent lies in making connections between disparate themes and, you know, sharing the, the story. And they're just staring at him like, what the hell are you I will, talking about? Like, they, they come to him because the brother wants revenge yes. on this person. This family wants closure. They want answers because they believe their daughter was murdered. Right. But the setup And he's of... like, I will tie these disparate elements together. <laughs> yes. And, and find whatever person or vague cultural force is behind it, and I will define it. I will it. define yes. it. And there's like, yeah, what does that even mean? <laughs> when you're trying to mask what he's really doing, which is I am, I'm sitting here with my, my, my microphone recording all of you so that I can cut this down into something that will be a profitable story for me to tell. Right. I'm going to make fun of you and make a profit. I've already decided that. I love that. The thing is, I kind of love is that the mom at that point just like says, bless your heart. Yes. And he's just like, thank you. You know, like has that look on his face. Like, no, that's not what that means in the South. <laughs> I, I think that the, the, the thing that is great about the movie is, is, you know, from the start, your, your sense with Ben is, is what is Ben missing? And well, Ben's basically missing a heart, right? He kind of just seems like every situation is a manipulation. He doesn't, not really caring about people. And he has this, he puts on a face to make people believe he's, he's sincere, but he has no sincerity there. And what I really like is is that it's playing on the sort of cultural divide as sort of part of the tension for this movie. Because the there, I think as you told me, you thought this movie could go one way and it went a different way. Yeah, right? yeah. The, the setup is basically like, oh, this is some asshole stuck up guy from New York comes and makes them all look like a bunch of idiots, and then they find some way to get revenge on him or something. But instead. Um, he finds that the more that he uh, hangs out with his family and the more that he tries to understand this girl's life who he only really met once, um, the more he's like, oh, it's rubbing off on me that people care about other people. Well, yeah, <laughs> they, give him, they give him a sense of empathy. Right? I thought this was going to be this. This is the kind of bullshit story that Hollywood likes to tell all the time. The story about this city mouse who goes to the country um, makes all these assumptions, but finds out that he's now in the real America and that all he had to do was listen and learn how to line dance and it would close all of, all of these like dividing wounds of America and that all we had to do was listen to each other and it would solve all our problems. And it's that kind of John Stewart, you know, centrist bullshit about how, you know, we're all the same, you know, and that all these things, no, no, there are big cultural differences. And this movie has a lot of those big cultural differences in it. There aren't pat answers that this movie can sort of provide. It's not like, oh, all I had to do was learn to love country music. And uh, now I'm going to move here and all the way these, these movies always go. And it's like, no, those, those things are all still there. Those cultural divides are all still there. But what he stops doing is treating people like characters because what is Abilene, the girl who is killed in this story? She's a hookup to him. She's not even in his phone under her real name. None of these hookup girls are under their real name. They're all <laughs> vaguely dehumanized, like Random House Brunette. Sarah Bumble. Yeah, they all have names like that. And they're all like shorthand for him to not get too attached and what he's forced to do is see one of the people in his phone as a human being and see her family as a human being what is the art the discussion with john mayer at the beginning i don't want to know about your siblings i don't want to know what your your parents do for a living and that's what he's forced to kind of do mm -hmm. he's forced to to humanize them but even then i'm not sure if he even really does that because he never really meets abilene she's dead at the beginning of the story and this is something that is kind of thrown in his face by the Ashton Kutcher character, which is that, no, you you feel bad for a character right now. You saw recordings of her and listened to her music, and you're falling in love with a character. That's not a person. Even when you get to the bottom of this mystery, it takes a hard right turn, and I did not expect where this movie ended up. But yeah. uh, I like that this movie is sort of about somebody having to learn how to be real. Like you see a lot of the narration that he tries to do, like, oh, the West Texas sun is setting the desert of fire. And he's actually <laughs> moved by what he's seeing and he stops and he laughs and he goes, that's fucking beautiful. And which is a real thing to say and stop, you know, trying to stop, say something that would make this invisible, like sort of coastal liberal upper middle class NPR listener 
feel impressed or feel uh, validated or important. And it's not going to be some like high class freak show. We're all going to rubberneck at the people living in the sticks, but have like a genuine moment of, of honesty with another person. And it really isn't until he gets into like a fight with the family at the end that he has a real moment with them where he doesn't have an ulterior motive. I thought it was very interesting that they are presenting him as this sort of coastal elite who thinks he has it all figured out and he's going to come here and visit these, you know, southern yokels that don't, you know, aren't highly educated or aren't very great at expressing themselves. But they were right when, you know, the brother is the one that says, I don't think that she drug overdose. I think she was murdered. And he just immediately is like, well, that's ridiculous. Why don't you just call the cops? They were right, though. He's the one coming in cynically taking advantage of the situation for his own personal gain and profit. Yeah. And and for profiting literally off of this. And especially with you're telling a, a true crime story, and to me, that should be the topic that is treated with the most sensitivity and and the most regard for the feelings of the real human beings, the surviving family members that are affected by this. And it is, it is the opposite. We see the most unhinged uh, takes. With uh, you know, the most popular true crime podcast out there right now is called My Favorite Murder, and the fans call themselves Murderinos. Um, what? Yeah, I I wish I were making this up. I couldn't believe it. Like, what happened to taste, right? There is a podcast called uh, True Crime and Wine, and the goal is to pair the crime with a wine that they think, like, what is happening right now? Fuck. It's so, I can't believe this is a real thing, and it's so blatant, and I'm just like, you you know, Gitmo couldn't make me admit this, right? And they just go out there on Spotify and put this out, and people listen to it. They like it. They brag about, oh, yes, that's my favorite murder, and it's just it's, so strange. I, so uh, yeah. every every so often, it's not very often because of obviously the the psychological damage it does to me. I get in a twisted mood and try to see what the worst people on the internet are <laughs> saying. Oh, that's a deep pit, man. Yeah, I mean, yeah, any any moment of the day you can go and look if you want to. Really, there's no nothing holding you back. But this was. Just and this was uh, it was 4chan. 4chan is the easiest way to just go right into it to find cl- just click dive through 4chan. The internet's you'll, asshole. It's the you'll, you'll find it exactly. Terrorist. And it was a video. It was and I've seen I have seen videos like this before in college um, of somebody from there's clearly in some conflict somewhere getting his throat slit oh. by another human being, and it's the sort of thing where it's like oh the whole. Th- thing is a terrifying experience to, these, to know that these are all their human you're divorced from who they are but you know that they're human beings and the experience is awful and then you're like but the reason why these videos exist is not because um because there's there's me there's a whole ecosystem and uh there's a whole ecosystem and economy of the people who like they get they enjoy this right yeah. they're titillated by this they want it's more lurid of this. um and Certainly the true, to me, it's like the same thing should be at play in the true crime thing, which is like, you should feel disgusted and you should feel afraid. It should make you feel vulnerable. It should make you feel bad about humankind, right? It should make you feel empathy it, for yeah. the victims. And, yeah. you know? it, it shouldn't make you be like, oh, can I see the, you know, I want to see the bodies. <laughs> I want to yeah. know what it sounded but it's, like. But it's also, this is something that we've talked about with the Halloween 2018 movie, which is that movie was a repudiation, okay. <laughs> not just of <laughs> the, the, the slasher genre, but also of a lot of true crime content, which is this hyper focus on the psychology of killers where we are just going to show up in town with a microphone and re-traumatize people who went through in their community the worst possible of fucking experience, talking to family members so they can re-traumatize themselves for our clicks. And we can start focusing so much on, oh my God, this weird internal mythology where he thought a dog was telling him to kill people. And we don't think about the poor sons of bitches that were getting killed by this guy. And um, by, by the way, thank you, Michael Myers, for killing those podcasters. But <laughs> the you get into stuff like that and it gets so icky right away where we take something that is the worst possible thing that can happen to a human being and we do a makeup tutorial while doing it or 
we turn it into somebody's favorite new soap opera where it's like, okay, we watch a lot of Arnold Schwarzenegger movies and we giggle at a lot of the crazy violence that poor guy on the escalator in Total Recall <laughs> he uses a body shield. Yeah. Or, or God, Jesus Christ, the end of Commando. But those aren't real people. We aren't giggling about people. We aren't shocked and gasped at our favorite characters and the twists and turns the way we would on watching like Game of Thrones or Succession. Because these are real people. This happened to a real person. A real kid was locked up in some basement by their uncle and starved to death or something. And we can't just mine that for content. And I see a lot of, with the Ben story in here, the same detachment of, I mean, the fact that the original title in the movie was Dead White Girl. Yeah. There's going to come a point where this podcast is released to the general public it goes out on that npr station or it goes out on a podcast feed and at that point it's like has ben even considered the moment where the shaw family hears the fact that the story of their daughter's murder is called dead white girl and they're treated like a bunch of rubes yeah. and mind for for humor or and even when he's talking to his his editor at the NPR type station, she's like, "They're great characters. These are great characters." Yeah. Um. Here's a uh depressing story. I was on the car on the phone having a conversation with a director or producer for honestly I can't I couldn't tell you which one it was CBS or something and he had a sl- a sort of like slip one time and he was talking to me and he said uh you know well we want to learn more about you as one of the characters in this scene and and mm. he and he quickly corrects himself and he's like oh you one of the people that <laughs> that is how they how they see you yeah they are characters to them it's like the, like the NPC thing you know like not the way. Yeah. reactionaries use it but i mean like they they see you as a prop in the narrative they've already constructed before they ever emailed you ever talked to you on the phone and they're just trying to kind of like make you fit into it mm-hmm. and it's weird they'll get you there through editing i mean look at the beginning when when ben is first on the phone with his editor pitching this story and the the brother's in his truck probably waiting to see if he's going to help this guy maybe avenge his his sister's death like he's ready to basically go desperado and go shoot these guys and when he hears Ben go does does like a fist pump and spins around it's i got to prove to do a podcast but the brother is thinking this guy's going to help me get closure with my dead sister and this is a very different relationship that Ben is being two-faced where that brother's at least being honest with him about what he thinks is partially honest. That's yes. one of the things that I really like in this movie, yeah. which is that you find out that there is, there's a lot of ways that the Shaw family isn't being real. Like the big one being that they know that their sister really has a drug problem and they rightfully guess that if they said that Ben wouldn't help them. Mm-hmm. Ben even admits that. And What's kind of fascinating about this movie, and this is something, I think I mentioned this to both of you guys, but I really feel like one of the main influences of this this movie was a podcast, like a seven-part true crime podcast called S-Town from 2017. Have you guys heard of that one at all? Mm-mm. No, I would I would assume it would be Serial, but I don't know the specifics yeah, of S-Town. It is spun off from Serial. They're, oh, both, oh, oh. they're both like spun off from the, the NPR radio show, This American Life. I think okay. every true crime podcast is at its core somehow a spin off of Serial. That's what everyone wants to be. <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> the, the podcast that became big. Yes. So, yeah, I think a lot of it, it created a lot. And I have my mixed feelings about Serial, too. I mean, Adnan Syed, who probably very clearly got railroaded into a murder conviction got out of prison and if it wasn't for a bunch of coastal liberals actually caring about a a muslim kid getting framed for a crime because he was a character he'd probably still be in prison now um but s-town was a different animal s-town um came about because uh this american life was contacted by this guy named um john mclemore and John McLemore was living in a small Alabama town, and he contacted the radio show because there was a murder. And tell me how familiar this sounds. There is a <laughs> murder in in my small town, and it's been covered up, and nobody was going to do anything about it. And I guess the narrative he had at first is this was like this son of a rich business owner who had gotten away with murder. So uh, Brian Reed, this producer, goes down to Alabama to this small town, 
ends up spending a lot of time with John McLemore uh, and finding out that he is a fascinating character, that he's kind of, he's very folks, he's got a very thick Southern twang, but again, these are the stereotypes that, that us, you know, people living in the blue states have is like, despite his Southern accent, he's actually kind of <laughs> this, he's kind of a genius that he's this incredibly smart, thoughtful guy who fixes clocks and is building a maze in his backyard, like a, and is very depressed. Um, he's growing more and more focused on a coming ecological and economic collapse because fucking look out a window um, and it's it's dragging him down, and he looks at this town that he feels trapped in, and he hates it, and he calls it Shit Town, which is where the S-Town name of the <laughs> podcast comes from. So he hates being trapped here, but it's sort of like, well, this place is fucked and it has no future, but where else can I go? I can't afford anything out there, but also I grew up here. This is all that I know. And there's that kind of existential dread. And it's so he gets all of this audio with John McLemore and what he finds quickly in his investigation is there really wasn't, it wasn't that this guy murdered somebody. It wasn't that there wasn't a death at all. It was all entirely the rumor mill that had ginned this up. Nobody had died. They couldn't find evidence that there was even a dead person and the story just kind of died. So, you know, the producer went back up North and he's contacted a few months later and, John McLemore, he finds out, had just committed suicide. Oh, Jesus. And that's the end of the second episode. And the rest of this podcast doesn't become a true crime show, but it becomes like this post-mortem on a guy's life. This guy who didn't invite you down here to do this, to make him the star of your soap opera, or the sad, tragic story about, you know, how the socioeconomic, you know, grind has crushed these small Southern towns and what it's done to these brilliant people who are trapped in these lives that they can't escape and depression. And over the course of this show, um, they out him as a closeted gay man. They um, turn his neighbors into characters, but it's like incredibly well-produced. It's, it's often like emotionally touching and moving it's beautifully edited and all throughout I'm, time I'm listening to this again, there's this voice that's getting a little bit louder and louder in the back of my head. And I'm like, yeah, this is really good. But is this any of my fucking business? Do I have a right? Am, am I digging through the garbage of this dead man who never asked for this to happen? He didn't want to be a character in your favorite soap opera. And that's what I keep coming back to in Vengeance. Is that just what Ben is doing to this family? That they didn't want to be stars. And again, when you're when you're in that position, and you're certainly, from a socioeconomic standpoint, you have no fucking power. And if people want to show up as junior sleuths in your small town and start re-traumatizing you about the death of your loved one, you can't stop them in numbers. You don't have any kind of media footprint that you can use to push back against whatever narratives are forming against you. You don't have the kind of power. You don't have your own show. This has been done completely independent of you. And now you have fucking tourists showing up the way that tourists show up for Twilight fans in Forks, you know, except this is for a real thing. You can't control the sort of fan base that comes out of this. And I'm just thinking, if this show, if this podcast, Dead White Girl, then eventually Abilene, thank God he changed, Ben changes the name of it in this movie. If that podcast had come out, what would have been the impact on there? Would would he have been able to live with what he did to these people? Or is he far away now and he's already, I don't know. I think the the thing is that, of course, this movie takes a turn. This movie, that I love. Uh, yeah, this movie understands that it can end the very predictable way that you think it's going to be. That, that either he's gonna he's gonna join them and join the cause, or he's gonna go back home and have been the story's been created as a success because of their tragedy. Um, but I love the motif of the the recorder because the recorder is basically his method of extracting extracting from them extracting the the stuff that he wants what he needs from them um and in the end uh i guess we could talk about the spoiler is he uses that as a weapon essentially against the person who's the true antagonist in the in the movie um we should talk about let's, the, let's talk about the true antagonist in the movie yeah. yes yeah. um ashton kutcher is 
great in this movie. Yep. He is. Uh, I was surprised. Such an interesting character. He has such memorable and just uh, really captivating dialogue. You don't know what to make of him, but you're just... Whenever he's on screen, I'm I'm interested in what's going on. He's like a he's like a record producer. He has uh, a place called Quentin Sellers, which is the name Quentin Sellers Music Factory, making dreams come true since 2018. <laughs> um, he's got this. It looks like it's a converted ranch mm-hmm. that he's turned into a recording studio, and he's in Marfa, Texas. And people from all around can come there, and if they want to record their own album, and as Ben is going there, he's already making fun of him in his head. He's gearing up for the narrative that he thinks he already has about this guy. And you see him ready to scoff. Like he's like he's talking to his producer over the recording and he's saying, you know, do he does a narration and then says, oh, you can probably get that Rebecca Black song Friday really cheap here. <laughs> it's probably not expensive to get. And he's ready to make fun of him. And what he ends up sort of finding is this very articulate remarkably sensitive person who's very self-aware, not of just his part of the country, and says that, what does he say about people? He says that it's not that people aren't smart, it's that they are, and it's because they're smart and they have no way to plug that energy in. That's why they get into drugs. That's why they get into conspiracy theories, Mm -hmm. because they have no venue and they're stuck here, that this place is just it's been economically devastated by forces that are so much bigger than them that don't give a shit about them and you realize ben is kind of one of those forces he's picking the bones at this point and even at the end uh ben says to him this isn't what i expected to have happened here and quentin sellers says you came here to make fun of me didn't you mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and he's like no no i get it and he doesn't it's like you see all of ben's assumptions like he doesn't expect Quentin Sellers to make references to like Andy uh, Warhol or, or Oscar Wilde. Right, he right. doesn't expect him to be interesting or intelligent. He also, when he sees a recording of this young girl doing her own country song, he doesn't expect to be moved by any of the art made in this building. But the difference between the sort of stuff that Ben makes in that country song, that girl singing about working at a, at a Claire's at the mall and feeling alone, just feeling utterly alone after your shift and you see you see Ben actually be surprisingly moved because she's actually making art that means something to her and he doesn't it's not predatory i think it's so interesting again they're highlighting how he thinks he's he's got it all figured out but he's so judgmental of these people while he comes in with these such a cynical um, and predatory approach to them um, and and thinking so poorly of people before they've opened their mouths and, and just even vocalizing that. Again, just to draw it back to my own experience, probably the, uh, there was one piece of feedback that I kept getting over and over from everybody that I talked to, every newspaper, every podcast, whatever. They all said the same thing after we had a conversation, which is like, wow, you're you're so eloquent. I just wasn't. <laughs> oh my God. I'm a grown one. Like, like they were talking to a child or something. And like, what did you think this was going to be? I <laughs> thank you. <laughs> it was so weird. I didn't know. Why do you all keep saying this? <laughs> and is... they, they think they are the masters of the universe. Well, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a thing of uh, assuming no com- no competence yes. and this is sort of part of the part of the bigotry that he has against um the family is he's he's assuming that they're rubes that they're not competent that he's um you know two or three levels above the rest of them he's like sitting down at the table talking with one of the one of the sisters and he's like there's something have you ever some something called <laughs> Chekhov's gun and the 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 sister is like I've never heard of that. Which play? I know it's from you know. Yeah, there's not a gun Vanya. in any of Chekhov's plays. There's not it's a just, gun in there, and he like he's a, he he clearly he doesn't. He clearly has never read an Anton Chekhov play. But I like that the the idea that he's always coming into these situations believing that he's sort of forearmed about being like, oh, I know who these people are going to be end up, and it provides. It always provides like at least a little bit of humili- like funny little humiliation for him that he has to go and stand up and then be like, "Oh, now I understand. This is why I am I am the thing they're making fun of." Yeah, you know? that, that you live in a small town. A lot of people are extremely provincial and are not super educated, but you make this assumption that because of that, that you must be by contrast worldly and and educated 
and well read, <laughs> the, the, and you're not. You're just as provincial as somebody. The else. announcer at the rodeo that was the perfect <laughs> example. So they go, yeah, go ahead, Mike. No, I I fucking love that. One, I love the fact that when he's listing off a names of the sponsors for the rodeo, I wrote it down. <laughs> He says, we say a special hello to our sponsors, Stetson Energy, McGuane Energy, Trailways Energy Company, Rawson Energy, the T&B Energy Company, <laughs> Panhandle Energy, Andrew and Sons Hardware, an energy corporation, <laughs> Anderton Energy Transport, Donahue Energy, and the Quentin Sellers Music Factory, making dreams come true since 2018. But I just, I fucking love that. But yeah, that he... He goes up there and accidentally applauds for the wrong, for the wrong uh, Texas college, and he doesn't know that he's in enemy territory. And they they call folks up there to try to defend both sides of this issue, and he makes a fucking ass out of himself, <laughs> uh, because they ask him what he is, and they mis mishear him and say he's a writer. And he tries to, he starts explaining what a writer is. Like, well, you know, if you, you cut, he's the way he fucking says this. If you come across a book or a magazine, <laughs> if you come across, you know, somebody has to think up. And the guy just says, I know what a writer is, you condescending asshole. Yeah, just the, the assumption that I'm going to come here and explain everything even your own culture to you and be so taken aback and offended when like you can't you don't know what their life is about like he thinks that the texans won at the alamo like he's just <laughs> yeah there's these little bits where you're like dude that's literally the only thing that you probably can know about the alamo but it's just it's it's kind of amazing you see these moments where ben never questions the, the the misbelief, the mistaken belief that the family has, like the reason they've invited him down to Texas in the first place is they're under the the misunderstanding that Abilene just wasn't just like a hookup to him, that he was a serious boyfriend. They think he's like family and they're inviting him down. He never dissuades them of that and uses it to do the podcast. And even his editors like, well, that's good for us, but that's still kind of fucked up. Um he never questions this idea that Abilene is just so won over by his big city charisma and charm that she just must be mistaken. She's the one who misunderstands. She's the one who is so won over. It's, it's not that she's lying to her family, which turns out to be the truth, that she's really texting her drug dealer and has put the drug dealer in her phone under Ben. <laughs> and she's just told his story to her family to cover up that she's scoring from her drug dealer and when he finally gets the the phone open at the end she's even like hey listen it's just a dude i hooked up with in new york my family's become obsessed with him now it's kind of cute where he's not this special person in his in her life he's just a hookup too which is such a great contrast to the beginning where they're like, oh, yeah, I'm dating seven or eight girls at once now, but I could be dating just three or four. You know, <laughs> yeah. Just really get down to earth. And no, you could be the one being played. Yeah. And, and you don't, you're not the master of puppets in every scenario. He never even considers the, the possibility that she's just as not serious to him as he is to her. But the, the person who's revealed to be a drug dealer is Quentin Sellers. And... This is one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie. And I really think Ashton Kutcher just knocks it out of the park as he goes there and there to confront him. And he doesn't even realize that it's him at first. He knows that there's somebody and he believes that because what happened is she overdid at a party, overdosed, mm -hmm. and um, they don't want to call Nick is in Texas. We don't call 911 for a fire or an ambulance. Sure. But <laughs> but we don't. Well, also, the cops in this movie are wonderfully no, useless. I mean, I, no, I, I think that this is the possibly the best way you can comedically portray police in the in, in a story like this. Oh, Mike and Dan. Right. That they're just they're just idiots. They're completely ineffective. They wield all this power, but they, they don't care enough to actually do anything to help the people around them and they shirk their responsibility regularly they're just the laziest assholes <laughs> you can tell these guys were just high school jocks who peaked in high school exactly giving people the run around and wasting their time that is exactly what it's like <laughs> they, again this this film is very accurate if you go if you've been in any type of scenario like this um, I mean <laughs> it's pretty close I love the the county sheriff is ready to brush him off until he 
rightfully mentions because someone told him the, the sheriff is a real politician. He goes, well, okay, I understand you can't talk to me, but I'm just recording a podcast that millions of people are going to listen to. And suddenly the sheriff wants to, <laughs> to tell him everything about the, the oxy uh, smuggling business down there. Um, but what we find out at the end of this story is that Quentin Sellers is that drug dealer, that he's the one that I wonder if that's how he keeps the music factory open. Cause it can't be super profitable out in the middle of nowhere, but there's also for all his talk of this sort of sensitivity that he shows, he has this ability at, at cruelty for self-preservation just as much as any other kind of predator where if people are in a position to get him in trouble, he drags them out to this kind of jurisdictional dead zone. It's overlapped by all of these different forces, all of whom the cops, the border patrol, the county, the local, all of them, they all just want to pass it off on someone else. So therefore nobody really checks it up and they have to brush it off. Oh, it's just another OD. And no cell phone signal. No right. cell phone signal. Ben has this moment that I think in most other movies would have been the big climax of the movie is he gets Quentin Sellers to admit this thinking he's turned off his recorder, but he has his phone recording in his pocket. The This is the big moment that I think most liberals just absolutely fucking love and I think should have been in the age of Trump so thoroughly debunked. This idea that if we can just get this awful person recorded <laughs> admitting what a bad person they are. It's like you watch something like Batman Returns where when I was when I was younger I'd say there's no fucking way this disgusting monster man could run for public office. There's no way so he's like so gross. It's so obvious that he's bad. There's no way he could win. <laughs> and I thought that was the most unrealistic thing. When I didn't know the really most unrealistic thing was that if you just record him being awful in private, that everyone will abandon supporting him and he will lose. <laughs> it turns out that it turns out that Batman got it backwards. Who knows a Tim Burton movie was unrealistic. But <laughs> so he has this recording of Quentin Sellers admitting that that he dragged her out there where she couldn't implicate him and just let her die. And he goes, well, fine, that's okay. Do you need me to re-record that again? I can, I can do, I can rephrase it. And it's that point where you realize that Quentin Sellers is much more self-aware than probably any other person. He knows people being turned into characters. He knows the discourse. He knows how this is going to go. And he's like, well, fine. I will be the bad guy for a while, but people are going to start asking, well, what's the difference between killing someone and letting them die? And then they're going to start asking, why the hell were you down here, Ben, exploiting this grieving family? And then they're going to turn on the family. And then, you know, on and on and on until nothing means anything. You know, everything is nothing. Then the movie fucking goes hard. Yeah. <laughs> in a way that it, the whole movie is about Ben hearing this idea of the sort of direct vengeance that Ty is, is advocating. Basically, it's time to Liam Neeson this shit. Um, ben just pulls out Ty's gun and shoots Quentin Sellers in the neck. Yeah. <laughs> and I, if I had put down money on like a bingo board of where I thought this movie was going to go, it wasn't this. Yeah, it was a, I was surprised as well. And I was like, did he just grow a conscience really fast? Or is he just really upset that, like, Quentin is kind of right about him? You know, he's, he's, he is savvy to what uh, he's doing. And uh, obviously that doesn't, you know, he's guilty of killing this girl and probably other people. Um, but, yeah, all of a sudden he, he transforms from this uh, person that's swoop, swooping into somebody else's life and making a profit off of a terrible situation to like actually yeah uh, we're we're going the vengeance route here we go and I really I really like how you do it because obviously you know we're we're like in movie territory and it just made me think of there's a have either of you seen L A Confidential yes. the nineties movie yes. um, Guy Pierce's character is like a do gooder and the the story is really about his corruption right about his changing his characters him becoming more corrupt and the way that they pay this they set it up and pay it off is um the guy who's actually the bad guy asks him this question would you be willing to shoot someone in the back if you knew they were going to get away with it right if you knew some lawyer wasn't going to get them out and at the beginning guy pierce is like yeah oh no i can't i would never do that that's just that's not right and then by the end he does um and i was like to to me that is a that is like a like a vigilante type of type of trope um 
And I just re- just rewatched Death Wish, so I'm like my my head is exploding with it right now. Is like, oh yeah, but the big fantasy is he'll never get off. The 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 this person should be killed, should be shot. And but then it also makes me think. I think probably every police officer thinks that too. Mm-hmm. Is that they hope that they're that guy who gets to shoot them in the back, and that's why it's so weirdly problematic. But again, for- I think a lot of those cops don't really care about an innocent person or a guilty person going for. They're guilty right. of being sure. black. <laughs> I, I think sometimes they just kind of want to shoot somebody. <laughs> yeah. I think you get into it's the it's the yeah. I kind of think that sometimes people take that job for a certain reason because it's a. It's essentially a jobs program for retired high school bullies and <laughs> out of work racists. Well, it's, there is an appealing. I mean, like for me, Batman was a favorite character of of mine since childhood because there was something very intrinsically appealing to me about the idea of the vigilante, the person who stands up for others and makes justice happen when they are not powerful enough to protect themselves. Of course, this leans upon an, a vision and a concept of society that isn't quite accurate, right? You know, women are running down the streets and being mugged and, and every time you turn around. And if only someone was there to stop these purse snatchers, then this is what will fix all of society. But it's just the idea that like somebody will go outside the lines of uh, law and order even and put themselves at risk to protect someone else. Uh, it has an, an appealing element to it, but everyone thinks they're that person, right? Yeah, Even the yeah. bad guys, they think they're that person. And that's where we are straying into really murky territory. That's I mean, a- I love, we, we, we've said this before because we had a whole panel on vigilantes. Is like, I still, I love vigilante movies, but also it doesn't, you don't have to do a lot of thinking to understand who the targets are of yeah. that, of that. And that, I think that's really the big difference, well, right? The, the, targets the, the targets are the revealing part. They yeah. tell you what, they tell you something about the person who wrote the fiction. Who is it that they're scared of? Who are they pissed off by? Yeah. And I think like, it's kind of nice when you see targets, not just be urban, you know, people of color and young people you know, because that's what is what is the like the bad guy in Dirty Harry is literally a long haired guy with a peace symbol belt <laughs> buckle. I mean, it's it's that kind of stuff. And it's it you see that older kind of suburban white male who's terrified about going to the big city, lock all the doors, slap the things down. I think the thing that I've really discovered this weird thing, like, you know, you, you believe a lot of these childish reactionary things when you're a kid. Yeah, Batman will solve all of this. But then Batman is really just going after you know the symptoms of a much deeper societal rot he's not preventing crime he's just beating up people most of which are probably driven to crime because you fucking try living in gotham city (laughs) while he sits in his ivory tower of wealth and privilege and uses it to buy batmobiles and uh in custom bat suits but, and so, but those suits are so fucking cool they though are. Oh, they, they look sick i mean there's no argument there ever but that's like is this the best thing for gotham right now people that dude? are people that are like sleeping outside in the cold are just like look at that cool thing but it's like then what ends up sort of happening is you grow up and you kind of drift into becoming a liberal and you think oh well that's not good you shouldn't punch crime you shouldn't blah 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 you know we should just let the system do the thing that it's supposed to do you know let the and we just have to get the right people in these jobs and then you move even farther left and you realize no it's a systemic issue and it's not just about a musical chairs of shitty people (laughs) um of various degrees of shittiness all doing the exact same thing and nothing ever changes and all we end up doing is getting a bat vigilante punching poor people (laughs) and i i just end up you again this is the thing is like in the end what would have happened if Ben had gone to the cops with this? They wouldn't have fucking cared. And this is this is something that as I drift to the, you know, as a, as a socialist now, I don't expect the systems we have in place to fucking work. And that's where, you know, I don't feel bad about Quentin Sellers getting shot in the neck because these are probably the only consequences he ever would have gotten. Yeah. And the initial reaction that, that Ben has, well, did you call the police? I mean, this isn't, isn't this a matter for them? That is the reaction of someone who has not called the police. And you don't know what it's like because the, those who have experience with this know better. Yeah. <laughs> they know that where it goes is nowhere. It's like, you know, I just, unless there's some reason in your insurance that you need to have a police report to get your insurance <laughs> payment, 
unless somebody pulls a knife or a gun, there's never really a good reason to call the cops. It's like, you know what? I really wish some fucking asshole that I hated in high school would show up with a gun and start talking down to me five <laughs> hours after I called them and then not get the thing back that was stolen. Mm-hmm. That's that's what I need. That's I, you know, I've always got to think of, I was trying to find a way that I'll, that I'll when my kids become teenagers, I want to how I instruct them to deal with talking to the police. And I think the heuristic that I have now is do not call the police unless you want some trouble to be started, <laughs> because that's what you're f- f- effectively doing is you're saying you're calling them and giving them a reason to come and start trouble. It could be trouble for people who are trying to steal something. It could be trouble for people who are doing uh, harmful things to other people, but usually it's harmful to someone. Someone is going to have problems in their life because of calling them. So you have to be very careful about how you use that, you know? And I mean, seriously, we're talking about stealing shit. What do you think asset forfeiture is? Right. I mean, it's they steal way more shit than your average person on the street ever could. And and the, the portrayal of the police within most true crime media is one of uh, uncritical... Oh well, they're the heroes. They're the they're here to save us all. And these are questions that I got, you know, after my experience uh, with being related to someone who committed a double homicide. Well, you feel differently now, right? Now that the the police have solved this this crime, now now you've come <laughs> back around, and I'm just like, mm, I I don't feel that way. And uh, you know, we're not going to get the. I don't want to participate in the hero shot. That's what I they call it. Edit they... coming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was shocked that the Everett Herald included the quote where I said that, that police orib- originated in slave patrols. They included that quote in their front page. Wow! Channel. I couldn't believe Bravo. it. Bravo! They, they were the most. They they were um, the most accurate and and uh, unafraid to publish what. I had said I was impressed, but you still kind of get those those questions that that feel like oh, but don't you feel like mm, no? Yeah, I I don't. No. I was on edge the whole time. I was apprehensive. I was guarded, and I did not answer all their questions. And I was so conflicted about it. The only reason I agreed to participate is that I feel it's so important to advocate for victims, and this could be sure. their only chance to hold someone accountable. Well, doesn't this? So this is the one of the things that this sort of thing rests on is uh, where you can say. The, the one platform that you, in your own story, in your own life, it can be like, well, what's the one thing you can do is you can actually shed some sunlight, just like you were talking about Adnan, uh, Adnan what's his name? Oh, Adnan Sayed. Ad, who's shedding some sunlight on something could actually have some justice per- perhaps happen. And the cops were involved in that case, yeah. and they railroaded an innocent Muslim kid. But so, th- yeah, I don't feel better about the cops after all of this because they had to be shamed into doing the right thing, which mm-hmm. is usually that the level of embarrassment has to be tremendous for the cops to change their mind. After the, that, the like la- a couple of years ago in Buffalo, these two cops knocked over a 70 year old man and cracked his skull open on the pavement. When those people came out of, of being charged finally, because it took another a bit of protest to get that going because the video came out. All the other cops, the good cops, as they tell us, were all outside applauding like these two motherfuckers had just won the Super Bowl. Yeah, you know, I thought it was interesting. You mentioned earlier about how because S-Town happened that there's, you know, there's more public pressure and then there may be uh, somebody may be held accountable that otherwise wouldn't have. And the the view that I've had looking at some of these cases is that I feel like that's incidental, like that wasn't their goal when they set out to write a book no. or create a podcast or make a documentary. They are there to get their clicks and get their views and get their downloads. Well, it's just an it's just extra special cherry on top if yes. there's yes. also like, oh, and then this, uh, you know, the last episode is look at how the prosecution changed or something, you know, but like it's, it's it doesn't same, need to be that though. It's like the GoFundMe lottery where you have to have a sad enough compelling story to go viral and only then can some kind of justice be forced because a fan base wants an end to their story. Yeah, <laughs> and- they, they all want a, a Humans of New York a uh, multi-thread story that keeps them on the edge of their seat that that they're crying and sobbing and oh I know just how you feel and you you have to have that story and and the person was already suffering there's millions of people suffering like that exactly. and we don't care about them we're not going to address the issue we know we want our dystopian capitalist heartwarming bullshit <laughs> yeah. I I really I really appreciate with this movie when 
the the there is of course a villain but the forces that the villain wields are a real actual force that b- destroys lives yeah that in reality not not like they're not they just didn't make something up they didn't have quentin's sort of thing being that he shot a gun somewhere and she died or whatever it's a real actual force that is not sexy that is not uh worthy of you know huge movies yeah sometimes uh what happens is that drug dealers um, not caring about who the lives they destroy, um, let people destroy themselves with their drugs and they're responsible. Like that happens all, every day. It's not some cosmic force of evil. It's just sort of like, oh yeah, it isn't Thanos. This person, yeah, you it's know? just it's just people who are drug dealers who don't care. It, their I, business is to not care I, if they destroy you. I'm sorry. What it, what is? I'm sorry to say something that rhymes with capitalism, but <laughs> the incentive to make a bunch of money is generally not to be a good person. To not yeah. care about the sort of, I think, what do they call them, externalities, the the ways that you can potentially hurt people. It's only incidental that this that the drugs are illegal, because there's plenty of things like the Sackler family who are selling the exact same drugs who are happy to kill off God knows how many God, you know people in the same part of the country completely legally, because they're throwing these things, these, these opioids around like they're fucking M&Ms. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the same bullshit. And wait, wait, I, are opioids the woke M and M's? Oh, they're the woke M and M's. Or fentanyl? That's the what? Those fent- are the yeah, fentanyl is the, uh, fentanyl. That, that's oh, what make all the police uh, faint on their couch. Because <laughs> apparently, <laughs> if it touches your skin, you die right away, like it's kryptonite. But oh, I God. feel like that was. I feel like that was it had some definite uh, pop rocks and Pepsi can sort of vibes to it, where you were just like, it's an urban legend. So my cousin has the Mortal Kombat finishing move that where he takes his dick out. You see, know? the thing to understand is cops are terrified of. T- touching a pill or they'll die so if you think the cops are about to murder someone start throwing smarties at them you might be able to escape yeah like pocket sand but like fentanyl powder just or- scratch a little f on a on a pez and it may be enough but yeah i mean that's that's the thing i think that this movie does is it doesn't give you definitive answer and this is the thing that i think ultimately is is ben's redemption arc is after all of this happens he erases all of the the raw footage that he's recorded this entire time and even says to um, Abilene's mom while she's driving him back to the airport, she says, what are you going to do now? And he says, I guess I have to find a new story. She says, well, what about this story? And he goes, that's just between us. That story is for us. And it is that moment of just going, this isn't anybody's business. As the villain of this story, you know, Quentin Sellers, understands that yeah ben can weaponize that recording of him but he can weaponize it right back this is this is not a this is a gun with two barrels and two triggers and they're pointed in that direction and it can be wielded in all sorts of ways and then it'll probably all wash out in the end and no one is going to go to prison but a bunch of people will feel inspired and that's that's what we is is to the sort of inspirational masturbation we all do when we feel something for a person that we've never met but don't care about a million people just like them. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. I can't tell you. So uh, C.C. Moore was the genetic genealogist who worked on the, the Talbot case uh, that was solved. And one of the biggest requests that she constantly gets, I see it in her comments all the time, is, you know, well, why don't you work on the Jean Benet Ramsey case? This, how long has this story been in the media? And, you know, we, we got people getting killed by police and and killed by systemic conditions in America every day. But Jean Benet Ramsey, that's the, because it's the beautiful, cute little white girl that, yeah. that people are obsessed with. And that's what they, that that's the story that they want to hear. It's not about necessarily uh, addressing the symptoms or, or solving the, the uh, crime that has been a cold case for decades because those those families have desperately been searching for answers well i want to know what happened to the cute little girl <laughs> well that's literally what ben says at the beginning of the movie where he she goes dead white girl and he goes holy grail of podcasts yes exactly <laughs> and and that is just so weirdly accurate and the only reason they haven't done that is because you have to have dna evidence you know yeah. to even begin to go down this path uh, otherwise yeah, that is, you know, that's why they on the finding your roots thing, it's a bunch of celebrities, you know, that they pick so that they can, you know, 
I want to learn that Ben Affleck's ancestors were slave owners and like, you know, they, they're going to leave that part out, right? They, they discovered <laughs> that he had ancestors that were slave owners and he didn't like that. So they didn't want that published and their emails leaked. And that's the only reason we know. I, I think mm. my favorite bit with that, I think the best reaction to someone finding out they had slave owners as ancestors was Anderson Cooper because he comes from a really rich family. So, of course, the family owns slaves. <laughs> yeah, it um, goes without saying. He um, found out that he had an ancestor who was killed by a slave who beat him to death with a garden tool. Fucking right on. <laughs> Based. Um, so uh, they asked Anderson Cooper, the host, do you think he deserved it? And Anderson Cooper went, yeah. <laughs> Which is um, right answer. Right answer, by the way, Anderson Cooper. Yeah. So I guess that leaves us with our final question. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is vengeance worth our time that seems like a philosophical question but i mean the movie vengeance <laughs> is yeah, vengeance yeah. worth our time oh okay well uh i i really enjoyed the movie and i was so glad that you told me about it because i had not heard of it uh until uh you suggested that i check it out and clearly like i said you know it, it offered all of these particular interests and insights for me because of my experience and i was ready to pick it apart you know it's like watching a movie about I don't know, being a stewardess when you are a stewardess. And sure, like you're, sure. And you know, like, oh, well, that's not real and that's not. But, yeah, it it is very exploitative. It is people that are telling this story in a way that is insensitive to the families or telling it over and over and over. How many times do we have to hear the same story because it's still getting clicks, because it's still popular? And people don't want to think about that side of it. Uh, I don't think it's, it's necessarily always bad or evil to have a true crime story whether that's a podcast or a book or a movie or what have you but the approach needs to be it, it deserves a lot more reconsideration than it gets and this this film addresses that in really well it doesn't come at you in a lecturing way it shows that process of this is why where he started and why he's approaching it that way and the this is the effect that it, that it can have when you treat people like, you know, pawns you're moving on a board to accomplish your goal. Uh, it's, it's a really, it's a really challenging and, and problematic way to view other human beings, especially when you're talking about a, the worst things that could happen to people, mm. sexual assault, murder, and the, it's so casually tossed about. It's so, people are using it as their personality and their whole identity is like, oh yeah, I just, I just love the Zodiac killer. It's just, <laughs> I, I'm not like other girls and I'm just built different. Like, what are you trying to prove with this? It's very strange. And we, so we as a society need to take, look inward of like, why am I interested in consuming this content? And if we are to continue producing these stories, is this a story that needs to be told? Do I have a right to tell this story? And have I consulted and gained the consent of the people involved? These are the questions we need to ask. And I and so I enjoyed the film very much for exploring those questions in a thoughtful and entertaining way. Uh, I, I'm really, I enjoyed it. I'd definitely recommend it to anybody. I think this is, uh, I don't know if the, if the, it's been specifically designated as like a neo-noir, but it is a noir movie of a certain type. You feel like you can take the Ben character and just make him a newspaper reporter, um, you know, in some, some kind of crime story. You could see all of these beats happen in another just kind of rote crime story, um, even at the, even the twist at the end where the, he, he becomes actually the, the victor. Um, but what I love about it is that it's just fucking funny it's it's you think it was all these heady topics we're talking about but he's really really good his deadpan is extremely good all the characters around him are are you know there's like it the the older brother played by boyd holbrook probably the best thing i've ever seen him in by the way um at the they're like at the funeral or whatever and they're doing like he's doing like comedic crying they're not doing like real ugly crying like sobbing terrible stuff he's like he's really making it funny the characters are genuinely funny you know mm -hmm. um and when you can have a you know when you can have an analysis about murder crime and society and the media in something that is just so entertaining to watch that's it's beautiful it's a beautiful delivery mechanism I, it, for sure i i thought bj novak when i saw it i was like this is going to be like hot garbage and now i'm really interested to what he's going to do after this I, I do too. I really like this movie and I hated the trailer when I initially saw it. Yeah. Mm. And I think a lot of what I hated about the trailer is it felt like they made a trailer for the kind of movie I feared this was. The, the sort of city mouse learns to line dance 
and grows a heart three sizes or whatever and ends up moving there. And, you know, I, I avoid so many of the pitfalls. One of them, the bullshit notion that just bringing out a recording of Ashton Kutcher confessing to letting somebody die <laughs> is, is not the home run that you think it is. And letting them letting them go there and go, yeah, so what? Um, I think this movie takes so many turns that are genuinely interesting and compelling. Ashton Kutcher is fucking great in this. BJ Novak is great in this, you know, and it is a dissection of a thing that I've had, you know, true crime content that I've had a real contested relationship with. And even when it's the kind of artisanal true crime that you get on something like serial, I'm always wondering did the people in this story who are oftentimes being played for laughs really want to be treated this way? Um, can, can we see humanity or do we reduce people to just characters in a soap opera? And then when something awful happens to it, it's like the red wedding in game of Thrones um, where, Oh my God, that was so shocking. What's happening next week. But this movie, the fact that he shoots him at the end, I just, I never watching the trailer would have guessed that this is where that movie was going. Yeah. Yep. They kind of have to do that to because that's such a shocking twist. Uh, I hate it when a trailer just shows you everything and you feel like you've already seen it before you walk the theater. And so uh, that is, I can see why you'd hate the trailer because it up till then, that's a fair assumption. I was so happy with this, um, you know, that, that the guy who goes from taking these disparate things and trying to discern a, a vague cultural force and define it, I will define <laughs> it, then ultimately he shoots a dude in the neck and the family knows that he did it and they're happy to just let it be their private story. And it's the first kind of real moment he has with them where he's not being two faced. And, um, I, I, I think this movie's great and I want BJ Novak to make more movies. And, and you know, if you've listened to the whole thing, we've spoiled the whole movie yeah. for you, but I'm sure, I'm sure you you should go back and watch it anyways. Yeah, I, I definitely holds up watching it with a lot of this stuff in mind. So, Chelsea Rustad, thank you so much for being on, on our show with us again. Thanks for coming back. Thank you for having me. Uh, this was such a unique film to touch on these topics in a way that I hadn't seen explored in a, you know, full production movie like this before and it definitely deserves more attention and i really enjoyed hmm. just uh watching it and then having getting to have the discussion so thank you so much and if people want to find more about you and your book where should they go uh well uh, as a result of the excitement of dealing with the media and weirdos who see you on the tv and google you and think they're your friend i did take my website down <laughs> <laughs> whoa wow yeah. yeah you know one of those things oh. happened today uh i got a notice on pinterest that one of my uh, genealogy pins was removed and violated standards for adult content which is not a thing it was all i have on there is links to the uh, media articles and and documentaries I've appeared in, but what what people do is they see you on TV and they Google you and they start kind of like harassing oh, you. Oh, do and, they flag and, your and comments and you shit. and just reporting yeah. everything and be, they don't want to see women on TV saying things. I don't know, like m maybe that's what it is. It's like a victim advocacy thing. She's saying that rapists are bad. Stop her. <laughs> and, uh, but that's not what I think at all. <laughs> yeah, stop. Make her stop saying that. Uh, I mean, like that sounds ridiculous, but right, I th right. I really think that is a big part of. It. And so like today that happened and then they restored it and, and I didn't even do anything. But it's just, you know, this is there's nothing glamorous really about mm. it. it. You'll get some people trolling you on Twitter and weirdos stalking you on Instagram and Facebook. And anyway, so to answer if, your if question, you wanna, if you want to if anyone wants to buy the book, what, what's the title of it? Uh, it is called Inherited Secrets uh, and has that long subtitle that my agent at the time said I should have. <laughs> <laughs> and it's on Amazon.com. Cool. Awesome. And uh, thanks again, Chelsea. Yeah, thank you. And a special thank you to our episode sponsors. Special thank you to Larry Brunswick, Margaret King, Tim Batson, Dan Neidecker, Zuri Russell, Steel Wolf, Sterling Taylor, Tom the Belgian, Wim the Belgian, Misa the Barbarian, Jem Newman, Carol and Dave Brulette, Calzone, Kalen, Matt Weber, and Jeff Nathan. Thank you guys so much. We love you to death. And if you want to become an episode sponsor, please go to patreon.com slash radio versus the Martians or click the big green button on radio versus the Martians.com. Otherwise, folks, we will see you next month. Radio versus the Martians is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. 
This podcast is recorded in beautiful Valverde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Dorn, and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music is written and performed by James Wetzel. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. no sense if you think about it. Every other primal human instinct leads to a clear evolutionary reward. But vengeance is different. It's not about the future. It's only about the past. When that massacre happened, we didn't retreat. We didn't say, let's all make sure we don't get mexophobia. We said, remember the Alamo. It's not about hope. It's about regret. Abby was always creatively minded. She would make movies with her sisters, music, of course. Oh, she has such a beautiful voice. I really wish more people could have heard it. You're a writer. Anything I'd know? None of this. The desperation that you see around here, it's not from a lack of intelligence or creativity. That's an exodus. We're not really a gun family. We have a few rifles for shooting targets, a couple of handguns for safety. And, and that doesn't concern you. Why would it concern me? There's this playwright, Anton Chekhov, and he says that if there's a gun in act one of a play. There's no guns in any one of this plays I can think of. Cherry Orchard, no. Uncle Vanya, I'm not no. actually that familiar with this place. Uh, I'm more familiar with this theory. But the stakes of these feelings aren't hypothetical. They're all too real. I'm your host, Ben Manalowitz, from American Radio Collective. This is Dead White Girl.